0: Text. Uh, th- this is a, a, the passage that we have in Matthew 14 of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes. It's a miracle story. This is what theologians call it. It's a miracle story. There's a scene of desperation that Jesus enters and he does a work that displays himself that we would have full faith and joy in him. He's going to reveal himself in a desperate situation. Now, what's remarkable about this miracle story is it's the only one outside the resurrection that is in all four Gospels. So it's, it's extremely important to see the scene. That's how I'm going to preach it. I want to explain the scene that he's walking into. And then when Jesus steps on the scene, what does he do? What does he say? How does he reveal himself? How does he display himself that we can have full and just a happy trust in Christ? It's a good word for us, too, because it really speaks to us in desperate times. It's speaking to a desperate people. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 14. We'll read 13 through 21. And then we'll look at the scene. We're going to understand that and then we'll move to understand the Savior. He says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over and all those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, when we read this, we've kind of sanitized it. We've brought it through in the children's Bible hour, and we understand it a certain way. I want to try to, to, try to desanitize it, if you will. I want to try to show it to you in the desperate plight that these people were facing when they came to Christ. Now, you look at the first verse. He says, now, when Jesus heard this, now, what did Jesus hear? that would cause him to withdraw. A lot of people just immediately go to the death of John the Baptist. You heard that his cousin, John, the forerunner, he was murdered by Herod, as we looked at last week, and that was kind of giving him a view to what was coming in his life. And, and because of that, he left. Now, I don't think that's the case, because we saw how Matthew kind of imported that story, rightly so, but it had already happened. So I I think I would submit to you that what he had heard is actually in verses 1 and 2 of 14, when he heard that Herod was assuming that he was, in fact, John the Baptist raised. Now, Jesus withdraws four times in this section of Matthew, and each time it's before opposition. You know, the religious opposition that he faced at the end of chapter 13, this political opposition. You know, Herod's thinking, hey, this guy's John the Baptist, killed John the Baptist. To Jesus. Now, two more times he's going to withdraw from opposition in 15 and 16, but I don't think it was a withdrawal in fear. Jesus knows what's ahead for him, but I think he's trying to avoid inciting unnecessary trouble. And he draws with his disciples into the boat to a lonely place. The disciples in Luke's gospel had already been out on their preaching ministry to collect the group together, I think is what Jesus was seeking to do, plus some rest and solitude. And so he, he gets in the boat and he goes to a desolate place. Now, we don't know exactly where it is, whether it's northwest or northeast corner of the rim of the Sea of Galilee. Uncertain, but he goes there, and when he, when he arrives, the crowds had already, had already arrived there ahead of him. I mean, news travels fast, and these great crowds arrive. 5,000 men. Of course, if it's 5,000 men and they had women and children, I don't know what the group would be. It would be 10,000, 15,000. I don't know, it would be a lot of people that he would see. But what he saw when he landed was this vast throng of people in need. They were in desperate situations. This is where I think we can sanitize things. I don't think they were all curiosity seekers. I think they were people in need. And in John's Gospel, it says that they knew he performed miracles and they went after him. These were broken people. He says in, in fact in Matthew chapter 9 Jesus says when he saw the crowds he said they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd you can imagine the physical maladies that they had lack of medical help i mean they were to come there hurting broken and hungry and this is a sea of desperate people but not just not just physically hurting and hungry and wounded and 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 seeking him for physical help, but the spiritual. I mean, they, they were tangled in the wheels of legalism. God wasn't being declared for them. I mean, there was a lostness to the people. He says they were sheep without a shepherd. So, I mean, you can just imagine Jesus seeing these people and the desperateness of their plight. So that's kind of the scene. It's kind of a sad, sorrowful, broken scene is what Jesus saw. Now, when you know, some theologians talk about this wilderness motif in Scripture. There's something about the wilderness that is to give us a picture of life outside the garden. So when you go to Genesis 2, and everything's beautiful and lovely, and then Genesis 3, they're pushed out of the garden. They're not pushed into another garden. They're pushed into the wilderness where thorns and thistles grow, and work becomes difficult, and you sweat. There's this picture in Scripture of the wilderness, of life apart from God. It's a difficult life. It's not just difficult. We, we kind of think in the third world idea right here, a picture in Africa perhaps, or a picture in, in, in Asia where you know, there's not enough food and the basic necessities of life aren't met. There is not medical help or there's not access to education. And we, we kind of look at them with a degree of sorrow and sadness over their physical plight. And, and that, I think, does give us a picture of the representation of life apart from God. But, but let's not miss the first world desperation. You know, there's a certain degree of we have our physical needs met here. But there's this lack of satisfaction that we're kind of deluded from when we have everything else. There's a certain degree of loneliness and sadness that many of us feel. We're busy people. We're surrounded by people, and yet we're, we're unsatisfied. You know when you're young and you're going through college and you think, well, when I get my first job, then I'm going to have money? Well, it doesn't take you long to figure out, hey, you don't have money. You never seem to have enough money. Well, when I get my freedom from my parents, I- I'm going to really be able to have fun. Well, there's no... Free freedom. I mean, you get jobs, you get responsibilities. There's this marriage. When I get marriage and I have the intimacy of marriage, then that's when I'm gonna really be, I'm gonna really be content. But you know what? Marriage is tough. And intimacy over time, it's still a beautiful thing, but it isn't it isn't what you've made it to be. Or the or or, or the relationships that you have. Parenting, I wanna have kids and raise them, and, and raising children is difficult. It's not everything. It's like everything we dream about, reality never meets the dream. There's always, there's always this discontentedness. Henry David Thoreau wrote in the first chapter of his book Walden, that's when he went out to Walden Pond and tried to live. He, said, he says, mass, the masses live in quiet desperation. Why desperation? He wasn't just speaking about the weakness in life over those who are pursuing just financial security, but but it's also those trying to pursue God, but they don't know where he is. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but he understood the desperation that we feel. The desperation that is outside the garden. Perhaps some of you are feeling that right now. I mean, maybe, maybe personally, your relationships, your marriage is in travail. It's in tragedy. You don't see any hope that your husband will change or that your wife will be different. Perhaps your, your children aren't turning out the way you wanted them to be. Maybe they're an embarrassment to you. Maybe finances are constantly pressing you. I mean, what are you desperate over? You know, I, I would almost put forth to you that I think... I would argue that I think Jesus leads us to these points of desperation. You know, earlier we talked about Matthew in the book of Matthew when Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. And of course it was traveling to the other side of the lake that they, that they encountered that great storm. And I argued for you that I think Jesus led them right into the storm to let them see their desperate condition because we don't want to see it and we don't want to admit it. But there are certain times in life where just, and I think this is the grace of God, we hit desperate times and it exposes the idols in our life. It exposes what we're trusting in. It reveals to us what is most important to us that is outside of God. These these times of desperation and difficulties are the very grace of God to remove the varnish off life. So we see that nothing can satisfy outside of God. Nothing can satisfy us. I mean, we, we may have it all dressed up on the outside very nice, but, but, but Jesus led them to this wilderness to display himself to them. These wilderness experiences that we are walking through, perhaps you're walking through them deeply right now, they can be very clarifying. When you're told, if you were to be told by the doctors, and all of us know somebody who has been told you've got two years left to live. That's a clarifying experience. You're not any longer fussing over, I need to get that new model. You're not fussing over, I gotta redecorate the house. You're not fussing over, how am I perceived at the office? Y- your mind gets laser focused. That's what these desperate situations do. And this is the situation here. I mean, these people are pathetically desperate. I mean, they're subsistence farmers or fishermen to go away for a day. You, you work for the day, you eat what you worked. You don't work, you don't eat. I mean, they're chasing Jesus down. I don't know how far they had to walk around the rim of the Sea of Galilee, but they had to walk for hours. And they needed him. They needed what they thought he could do. That's what desperation does. So, so let me just reorient you. All of us are in or will be in points of desolation. Wouldn't it be different to think, but he led me here. He led me to this. He led me to this to reveal his glory, and that's what I think we see in this miracle. They're desperate, they're hungry, they're sick, they're sad, they're lost. Jesus made the assessment. They're harassed, and they're helpless. Can we admit that? The Christian will admit that he's helpless. The Christian admits that he's broken in massive need of God. It's only the non-Christian that cannot deal with it. I mean, if you're a Christian here, can you not just recognize in your mind, apart from him, what can we do? Nothing. But with him, we're going to see there's much we can do. So so here's the desperate, that's the scene. The scene is... He lands, he sees a throng of mass of desperate humanity. And so, what's revealed about Jesus? Well, I think we're going I just want to draw three ideas about Jesus that I'd like your mind to kind of fix on and, and really put an anchor into. Number one is this compassion of Jesus. You, you, you see it clearly here, I think. He gets off and he sees all these people. Now, let me just set the context. This is probably a one, one year before he's going to die, he's been in ministry two years. We've come out of the rejection. Remember how Matthew, Matthew is intending to display Jesus as a king to believe in, right? In the first four chapters, his identity, five, six, and seven, he's he's teaching this new kingdom that he's bringing, eight, nine, all those miracles happen to display the glory of this king. And then he calls his apostles in chapter 10, he's gathering a people. Just like Moses gathered, he's gathering a people, a new people unto God. And then boom, he hits all this opposition. All this rejection in 11 and 12. And then he moves back to teaching on the kingdom. So this Jesus, he's got to be tired. He's rejected. He's oppressed. He's dealing with disciples. He's constantly ministering to people. He's got to just want a bit of a break. I mean, let's just get in a boat. Let's go where they can't find us. And let's just get together together. Pray, speak. Jesus had a pattern of retreating to solitude to seek his Father. And so you've you got to admit with me, you know, we say we need some me time. And I can imagine Jesus would have liked just some peace. I mean, we're that way. If I've done a lot of work, I almost feel entitled to it. No, I don't, kind of. I do feel entitled to it, which displays the nature of my soul and why I need the gospel. I feel, but Jesus sees these people and he moves towards them with compassion. And that little Greek word, it isn't just, it isn't like when you see a picture of a, of a child with a bloated stomach and you say, boy, you feel bad. That's not the word used here. The word used is that it's like your bowels are being twisted. It's this visceral pain over the plight of these people. We see him weep at the tomb of of Lazarus. So, So Jesus sees this desperate plight, and he is compassionate. But not like this just simple sorrow over a difficult situation. His compassion moves him to a tangible action. Now, Matthew records that he saw them, he was full of compassion, and he healed them. Now, Mark inserts something for us here, that I'd like to, I think it came first. In fact, in Mark 6, 34, he says, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I love that. Jesus gets out of the boat. He sees the desperate plight. They're hungry. They're sick. They need massive amounts of help. And what does he do? He declares the kingdom to them. He teaches them. He sees as their primary need to to hear that God has kept his promise. That that promise back in Genesis 3, when they were moved out of the garden into the wilderness, he says, no, one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. One is going to come and deliver. Picked up by Abraham in 12, 17, 22. He's declaring the kingdom has now come. God has kept his promises. God has come into the wilderness to draw you out and bring you to himself. I mean, what what words to give? This is a first order for us. If he fed us, we'd be hungry again. If he healed us, we'd need another healing. He needed to teach us. It's interesting, in John's gospel, in chapter 6, the people came back to Jesus the next day. They were looking for more bread. He says, don't labor for that which perishes labor for that which is eternal. In other words, the truth of God in Christ. Jesus taught them that He's the Messiah, come to deliver, to redeem, to restore. Put your faith in me, follow me, I'm bringing you back. I'm going to reconcile you to the Father. That's what they needed. But he also healed them. Jesus took a body, he was raised in a body, he ascended in a body, the body is important. We don't slip into dualism here where it's all spiritual and no body, Jesus did heal him. But he got the priority right. You teach him, and then he healed him. Can you imagine the day? It says, all day. In John's Gospel, it says, the day wore on. So the disciples come and want to shoo the people away. Now, this is not atypical for the disciples. I mean, they want to shoo the Canaanite woman away. They wanted to shoo the children away. And notice what Jesus says in terms of his compassion. He says, they don't need to go away. Now, can't you imagine Jesus all day long has been teaching and healing? Can you imagine all the people coming up? My back hurts. My arm hurts. I can't hear. I can't see. I mean, it would be. Can you just touch touching and healing and preaching and loving? What compassion? And the disciples, hey, I'm sure the disciples at one level probably were trying to be compassionate, saying, well, let's head off a problem. Let's get them out of here before they get too hungry. They don't need to go away, he says. Jesus says, have them sit in groups. And the word for sit means to recline like at a banquet. Jesus, I would argue, is like Yahweh of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me recline in green pastures. He leads them beside quiet waters. He's going to restore their soul. Perhaps in the mind of some would have been Ezekiel 34. What a promise this would have been to the people. He says, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Not speaking about King David, but the son of David. Remember, we talked about the, the promise in 2 Samuel that David would have a son and the son would have an eternal kingdom. This is the shepherd's son of David. He says, he says, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And he did feed them. This is Christ, full of compassion. If you had three words to describe to a person what Jesus is like, would you pick compassion? I mean, you might pick power, you might pick judge, you might pick a lot of things, Savior, but would you pick compassion? I think within the Christian community, if you're a Christian here, I think we still have this kind of fear about approaching Jesus. I, I think we, we, we may look at ourselves Perhaps we're struggling with sin. There's a besetting sin that you're working through, and you're like, I've got to do some self-reformation before I go to Jesus. And I just want to encourage you that his compassion is far beyond our tracing out. I don't want to engender any sort of license here. I want to promote a truth without promoting a a, a falsehood. I want to promote the truth that he's fully compassionate as displayed in this. That you, even in the midst of your sin, you hesitate to run to the Savior for help, and yet He's full of compassion. Come unto me, He says. I mean, consider how you view Jesus. And, and, and when you come to Him, do you see Him as wanting you? Do you see Him as desiring for you to come? You've got the same problems over the same years. I don't want to burden Him with it. I don't want to burden Him with it anymore. As if He can be burdened. By the burdens that he's already carried and died for. I mean, run to Christ. Consider him full of compassion. I mean, any parent here, you would say to your children, you never need to go away. Run to him. I mean, whatever the desperate situation you're in right now, he's full of compassion. What I love about this miracle story, though, is he's not just full of compassion in a weak kind of willy-nilly way. He's full of a power compassion. <laughs> we see the power next when his disciples suggest that they send him away. And he says to them, you provide them something to eat. And of course, they're looking in their pockets, and Mark's got, we don't have enough money for this, and... And, and, well, we only had these five loaves. Now, the Gospels are interesting. Matthew is the shortest of the story. And so I want to import what the other Gospel writers say, but I don't want to, I don't want to lose track of what Matthew's saying here because he has an intent to a story. And they simply come up to him and say, we've got five loaves and two fish. That's all we have. And so Jesus says, bring them to me. Boy, that's an operative principle that we as Christians need to live by. Bring them to me. So they bring them to Jesus. And and, and Jesus takes them and he looks up to heaven and he thanks God and blesses God, gives thanks to God. And then he breaks the loaves. Then he gives it to his disciples who give them out. Now, let me just stop for a second. This is going to be a free little word on grace um, I used to pray for grace forever. God bless the food, never realizing that it was the food that was the blessing. And for me to bless the food, was I trying to increase its nutritional value? Was I trying. I, and, and I, I kind of, I think I got a little crosswise with it. In all the different stories of Jesus and food, he's always thanking God for the food. The food is the blessing already. God's already made it a blessing to us by giving it nutritional value. We're thanking God for the food. We don't necessarily want to bless the food. We want to bless God, who is the giver. And every Jewish prayer would be that we thank God, the giver of bread. So let's, in our prayers, I'm not trying to just destroy your mealtime prayers, but I'm trying to get you to look up from the bread and know that he's made the bread, so it's going to be good. But he's the giver of the good bread. So we bless him first for the bread. So, so he breaks the bread, distributes it. And that, that Greek word to give is in the imperfect tense. It means he kept giving and giving and giving. Can you imagine the scene? He's giving the bread and he's giving the bread and he's giving the bread and they're busy distributing the bread. Where's it all coming from? I mean, and, and did you think too that, that it's all coming out cooked? I mean, it's not bags of flour. The bread's been, the flour's been kneaded with oil and baked, and the fish have been smoked or however they ate it, and it's all coming out. We don't, I love one blog. The guy goes, Were the fish ever swimming? Did their fins ever twist or turn? Was it out of the sea or did God break? We don't know. Here's what we know the power is displayed in its creative power. It's to, this is a faint glimpse of the power that in the beginning, This is the power that created all things with a word. This is to draw our minds back to creation. That his power knows no limits. That Jesus can just produce food. Produce food. It's an incredible thing that he's producing food like that. And this wasn't a one-flash deal. Just in in about a chapter and a half, he feeds 4,000 of the Gentiles. I mean, what charlatan, what imposter would try to do this? I mean, who in their right mind would say, have them sit in groups, I'm going to feed them. I'm going to feed them right now as if they could somehow do some smoke and mirrors and produce it. This is what I love when you read liberal scholars on this passage. Uh, They say that, no, the miracle wasn't in the production of food, it was in the sharing of food, that everybody shared their food with one another and that doesn't account for the 12 basketfuls of excess, nor does it account for Mark's comment that they had no food. There's nothing to share. Or other scholars say, well, he took the little bit of food, and he breaks it into little small communion pieces, 5,000 of them exactly, and, and you begin to distribute them. I, I love how sometimes we will do back handsprings to avoid the clear teaching of the text. And the reason is because is it, it demands us to deal with a God who has come in flesh. That's why I think we don't want to deal with it. I think we want to to soften it because we don't want to have to deal with this Jesus if he can actually produce food like that. We're we're actually rightly terrified over that power. And that's what I want you to see. He's full of compassion. He's full of power. Now, is this the Lord's Supper? Were they celebrating the Lord's Supper? Well, yeah, in a way, it kind of foreshadowed what he would be doing at the Last Supper. But I, but I want to remind you that every meal that Jesus celebrated, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 or the Last Supper or even the road to Emmaus, he broke it, he distributed it. He thanked God for it. And, and I do think it, it points not just to the feeding of the people, but the feeding of the people with himself. Because you can't look at the breaking of the bread and not think about him saying that I'm the bread from heaven. His body was broken for us. It's a clear draw of our minds to the cross where he would be broken for us, that his blood would be shed for us. They didn't know that at the time, but they would understand it. So we see Jesus full of compassion and full of power. Can you see this kind of power? I mean, this does beg for you to believe. If he has this power, would it not reorient us to the way we look at our desperate situations? I mean, would it not, I mean, you get cancer, or you lose your job, or someone dies. Does this not reorient us? I mean, does it not call for us to faith? I mean, if you're a Christian here, and you believe in the Son of God, who can produce food like that, then doesn't it cause us to use our finances differently? I mean, doesn't it make us think twice about being, perhaps a little stiff-armed when it comes to giving to someone who has a need? I mean, do- doesn't it challenge our love for things that he gave when we begin to have over-affections for these things or inordinate loves rather than from toward the one who gave it to us? It ought to challenge us. But not just is he full of compassion, not just is he full of power, but we see that he alone satisfies So like a shepherd, he he is compassionate toward toward us. Like a king and God, he's powerful. But now like a lover, he satisfies. Look at verse 20. It's kind of a very anticlimactic to an epic miracle, isn't it? 20, it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. That's how Matthew kind of wraps this up. And they all ate and were satisfied. Now, you know when you're hungry and you're really hungry, you get irritable. And when you get irritable and you eat your food, you're satisfied. There's a sense of satisfaction there. You know, like Esau. Esau was so hungry he was willing to sell his birthright. I mean, this idea of being so hungry. And yet they were satisfied in what he provided for them. And, and not only are they satisfied, but you see the overabundance of God in providing these 12 basketfuls. Yeah, I, I think he's, he's calling us that only in Christ will we be satisfied. I, I think it does point to the Messianic banquet, actually, as well, where we'll have our satisfaction totally consummated. In other words, there is a certain restlessness that Christians ought to have towards that day when we'll truly eat and be satisfied. There's a sort of eternal restlessness that we know these things in life can't satisfy us. We know that only in Christ, seeing him, being like him, can bring full satisfaction. We as Christians should understand that, that there's not going to be a sense, an aha on life in this world while it's still under the power of the evil one. And we shouldn't fight for that satisfaction from those things that he gives as only displays of his glory and not glory itself. It's calling us. They ate and they were satisfied. They were satisfied in who he was. The pleasures of his at his right hand will be the only things that satisfy us. And if you're a Christian here, you want to look at, am I trying to find everything in this life? of a material or relational nature, you will, not, you will find frustration and desperation. For the non-Christian here, I am so thankful you're here. I, I, I pray that as you think about your life and, the, and really the desperate corners that you're finding yourself in, that this is a picture here, this Jesus full of compassion, full of power, and full of love that wants to satisfy us, that you would turn to him by faith that you would say, this life has nothing for me. I need him, and I need him him alone. So this is the Jesus that we have. It's incredible Jesus. Let me just give you a couple things to take away from this. Hopefully you've had a few things already, but let me just give you a few, let me press it towards your soul a little bit more. The first thing is that, that he meets us in our desperation. He meets us in our in our desperate wilderness situation. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican preacher of of England in the 19th century, he said this. He said, Jesus has a heart to those who are broken under the weight of life, even steeped in sin. I want to return to this idea for a second, because if you're a Christian here, uh, you are sometimes, uh, you kind of restrict yourself in going to Jesus. You're in desperate situations. You put yourself in a desperate situation. You think you deserve to be there, and so you don't want to appeal to Jesus until you've done some self-reformation. Please, would you put a knife in that Would you consider Jesus full of compassion and that you would run to him for grace and aid? You actually need him in your sin. The only thing that we bring to God is our sin, and he's full of compassion and grace for us. So for the Christian, he meets us. If you're in a desperate plight now, whether it's caused by the sinfulness of your behavior or the sinfulness of other people, run to Christ. Seek him. Seek his grace and his help. Look at his compassion. Look at his power, look at his satisfaction, and begin to ask him for it. But if you want to not just enjoy the compassion of Christ, but I think the text also implies that we're to emulate this compassion. And to emulate this compassion is for us to begin to move outside just the established relationships we have and begin to exercise compassion to those who are in desperate situations. Now, I know many of you are involved. This is a place for, I would argue, the church to really shine. You know, the church has been a gift of God to display the wisdom of God, according to Ephesians 3. And so this is an opportunity for us to exercise compassion. So we have this ministry down to Foxford Elementary. Most of our kids don't go to school there, but we take them food on a peri- periodic basis to the teachers. The teachers are laboring under difficult situations. We don't even know them. It's an opportunity to be compassionate, to feed them, to care for them, just as a simple display of the gospel with the intention of building relationships that we can lead them to the Savior. But these take time. Ministry is difficult. Ministry is, it's consuming, it's demanding. This is why many of us shy away from ministry. I mean, I mean this idea of, of, if you want to exercise compassion, you are inviting inconvenience into your life. You are. It takes time. It takes effort. It's a hard thing to do, but that's the whole point of it because they know that. And so it displays your love for God as you're willing to embrace costs that are not yours for them. And it really gives feet to the gospel. Now, you know, we had this ministry that we wanted to start last fall, uh, Jobs for Life. It was an intense ministry, no doubt about it. It required maybe 15, 16 adults, two times a week for eight weeks. Now, we couldn't f- and what the, what the ministry is, the ministry is intended to take people who don't have work or who are underemployed and to train them to find work. So give them skills of interviewing and writing resumes. It's a very practical help, all fueled by our love for the gospel. We couldn't find enough people to do that. Now, I know that many of you are ministering in great measure. But I also know that many of us aren't ministering. Why? Well, it's hard on your schedule. There's no doubt about it. It's tough. It interrupts dinner. It takes away from family time. That's the heart of Christ's compassion. Can you imagine how fatigued he was, and yet he ministered to all those people? You don't need to send them away. So, I mean, just think about that. When opportunities of ministry come on, we enjoy this compassion. We want to emulate it. Okay, the second takeaway, I would say, is simply this, that he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things you saw what he said to the disciples he's really giving us a a method of ministry he says this he says you give them something to eat now that had to be a tall order like a cup of water before Yosemite going up in flames I mean really 25,000 people and we have a few loaves and the loaves were probably little pita pockets they were very small two little fish and you want us to feed really I think Jesus was testing them. That's what he says in John 6, 6. He says he did this to test them because he already knew what he was going to do. Now, these disciples, they had seen Jesus raise the dead, cleanse the leper, heal the sick. They had even been out on their own ministry experience. And we look at them and say, yeah, they should have known better. But what about us? We've seen God move. I've seen God move in my life. Shouldn't I be trusting him? I've got a history with God. And my history has many things in that of how God's intervened with grace and strength. See, he's calling the church into action here, I think. He involved the disciples. He didn't rebuke them. He just re-involved them. He says he gave them. They began distributing it. They began collecting. He did get them involved. What I love about this miracle is he took what they gave him and he multiplied it. He didn't take the fish and the bread and change its constituent parts and and bring fruit and other types of food. He took bread and made more bread. He took took the fish and made more fish. Why? He wanted to see our connectedness between our involvement with his gracious work in a sea of people. So so we're involved. He's taking what we have, the meager gifts and the things that he's given to us, we give them to him and then he multiplies it. I mean, it's, it's incredibly inviting. If we really believe, that's why Ray was praying and confessing disbelief over this Jesus. I mean, what could he do with a people? He can do anything he wants. He leaves it to be bread and he leaves it to be fish. That is our work that has been touched and multiplied by Christ. He can do these things. You, you're called to believe in this Jesus. Otherwise, how can we fulfill the Great Commission? Go into all the world Kind of a tall order. Overcome sin, kind of a tall order. You know, he calls us to do things that are beyond our control, beyond our ability, so we have to rely on him. That's why Augustine prayed. Augustine prayed, command what you will, and then give what you command. Command what you will, and then give what you command. He has to give us the power. And this Christ, who can create all things out of nothing, can do that for us. Would you believe that with me? Would you strive again, if you're a Christian here, to believe that? That I'm going to believe. I, I even, when I was praying while we were singing, the music was wonderful and I, I was thinking, God, what do I have to give? I had nothing. I got nothing. Some research, some review, hope I don't forget half of it. we we'll just take it and multiply it, multiply it among the people. That's what I was praying for just 30 minutes ago. You the same. However you're called to minister, that, that, that bring it to him. He says, bring it to me, I'll multiply. And then just two other small takeaways. Number one is we want to minister to the whole person. You know, Jesus did teach them. That's the first order of importance, I think, to preach the gospel. But it's not to be held in dichotomy with care for the person. We want to do both. We don't want to fall into this false argument of, Well, we've got to minister on the social action front. We can only preach the gospel. The role of the church is to preach the gospel, first and foremost. The role of the church is to exercise and display the gospel as we care about people. We want to keep them together. The, the other takeaway is that, that I would just employ you to find your greater satisfaction in Christ. You saw there eight and satisfied. There is this 12 basketfuls of abundance. People want to have all kinds of reasons why they were 12. They were 12 because it showed the disciples that you know, they can try. I, there's all kinds of things that the 12 could be. What I know is, is God is, well. he goes well beyond and above all that we can even ask or think. And so, so whatever the desperateness of your plight is, If you're a Christian here, but even if you're not a Christian here, whatever the desperateness of your plight is, what I've wanted to do is simply hold Christ before you. He's full of compassion. He's full of power and he's full of satisfaction for you. And and I think the scripture is calling us to go to him, bring everything to him that that is where your ultimate satisfaction will be. So, so let's just take a minute right now, and, just, and what I want to do is have a, a time, as we do, of silent reflection on this. The word's been broken, and now you are called. It may be a time of conviction for you where you confess your sin. It may be a time of thankfulness over a renewed love and zeal for Christ. But, but speak silently to the Lord on this issue, and then um, an elder is going to close us in prayer.